chapter 7, but I'm going to bring it in two parts. I'll tell you why in a minute. But Acts chapter 7, what's that? Page 1700, 1700. Wow, it's a lot of pages. So, I want to tell you the big picture or the main theme that we're going to be looking at this morning, and then I'll tell you how we're going to look at it, and then we'll start. So the big picture, the main theme is what what happens when we come under accusation or under pressure for following Jesus Christ and specifically for um, demonstrating that he's alive and active. What happens when we come under pressure or under accusation for following Jesus? Okay. Now, um, what I preach in this sermon, are, there's going to be some principles here that are going to apply to your whole life when you come under pressure, not just for following Jesus. Okay. So the principles apply to everything. What happens when you squeeze a ketchup bottle? What comes out? Ketchup. What happens when you get squeezed? What happens when you come under pressure? We're going to look at what comes out in Stephen today. We're going to look at what comes out of us when we get squeezed or we're under pressure. We're all under pressure. We all experience pressure. So we're going to narrow in. We're going to focus on a specific kind of pressure that's coming on Stephen and the church. But just know that this, the principles here are going to apply to our whole lives. So I'm going to break this sermon into two parts. And the first part is going to be teaching. The Bible says, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I'm going to teach to your minds for the first part because what happens in Stephen's message is incredible. And we need to pull it apart a little bit and see what the Lord's doing through him. And then after I teach and sort of talk through the passage, we'll sing the song of preparation and I'll preach a shorter message and I'll preach to your hearts about following Jesus and representing them. So it's a long passage. I'll tell you that right now. And I'm actually going to back up and read what Pastor Jalisa read last week because it's important to what we're hearing Stephen say this morning. So I'm going to start at chapter 6, verse 8, where it says, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did wonders and miraculous signs among the peoples. He's working miracles. He's healing people. He's laying his hands on them and evil spirits are coming out. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, hey, just notice this secretly. The kingdom of darkness always works in secrecy. It's a principle. In, in the kingdom of God, we do things out in the open and in the light. There's no secrets. So, we're, we're seeing the kingdom's conflict clash here, okay? They persuaded, persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. That means the religious leaders got stirred up. The people who are supposed to be leading God's people got stirred up. They seized Stephen physically and brought him before the Sanhedrin. That's the religious leaders. 
They produced false witnesses. Isn't that interesting? Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses. And now there's false witnesses witnessing against the witnesses who testified this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So here's the core accusation against Stephen. You are being unbiblical. Now, if you love the Lord, if you love God and you want to honor him and follow him, this is really serious. This is saying you are actually working against God. You're saying with your lips you want to honor God, but then this part of you or this you're teaching or whatever it is, is not biblical. So this accusation is, Stephen, you're not biblical. And in these ways, you are against Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible and was someone who God worked mightily through. And you're speaking against this holy place, which can mean the temple or and or the, the land of Israel. As well as you're speaking against God. So three things against God, Moses and the law, and then the temple in Israel. That's their accusation. Okay. Now listen to this. This is Stephen's response empowered by the Holy Spirit. I, I just want to say first, I think this is incredible. He goes through all of Israel's history in a page and he answers all of these accusations and turns them around. Then the high priest asked him, are these charges true? That sounds familiar. I think Jesus heard a question like that. To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. So right away, he links himself in and he says, our father. Same history. That word is going to, he's going to say our father or our people 11 times in this speech. 11 times God of our father appeared of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. You could read that and go, okay, that's history. He's saying God's not limited to this place. He appeared to Abraham way over there right from the start. You don't understand our God. He works with people everywhere. He started with Abraham over in Mesopotamia. Okay? Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for 100 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said. And afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. 
Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him. Notice again, presence of God with one of God's people, not in this place, but in Egypt. And rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king who knew nothing about Joseph became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you're brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Which he becomes. Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses. Again, revelation from God not in Israel, in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. Notice holy ground outside of Israel or the temple. That place in the desert is holy ground because God's there. 
I've indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge. He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt. What was Stephen just doing? Wonders and miraculous signs. At the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your among your own people. That comes from Deuteronomy 18, and it's one of the most important texts to the Old Testament Jews. They latched onto that and were that was formed a part of their expectation for a Messiah was that they had heard that God would send them a prophet like Moses and they had not seen anyone that had represented God or walked with God or spoken for God like Moses since. And so there was a prophetic expectation that someone would come. So they're very familiar with this verse. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Now Stephen is turning this around and he's going to show us that inside of the our fathers Israel, there's another group of our fathers not all of Israel, that's been consistently rejecting the voice and the work of God. So he's going to weave a second stream in. Our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. This agrees with what's written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert? O house of Israel, you've lifted up the shrine of Molech as a god of one of the other nations. And the star of your God, Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. That's the makeshift temple made out of cloth. And of the testimony is the Ark of the Covenant with the... the um, the, the two stone tablets that Moses took down the mountain. Okay. So he's saying our forefathers had the presence of God with them in the desert before they came into this land. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he'd seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place 
for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said that, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. God's word. I've said it again and I'll just say it again that I think one of the most sobering and humbling things that I read in the New Testament, in the Gospels and here in Acts, is that it's the church people who reject Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. That it's the people who've got the words of Scripture that are the ones who are actually standing in judgment on what God's doing. And so I think that that just ought to produce such humility in us as we listen to God's Word and as we search it, that um, we would be those who discern what is of the Lord like Stephen is discerning and like the Lord's empowering him to do as he represents the Lord. So I hope, I just hope that you could hear as I interspersed comments throughout that Stephen was empowered by the Lord to um, turn all of the accusations on their head and to say, actually, I'm very consistent. I'm not speaking against God. I'm speaking with and for God, and I'm, con- I'm consistent with what he did through Moses in terms of signs and wonders. I'm consistent with God working uh, in the way that his, his presence was not limited to a certain place or a certain land or even a certain people. Uh, I'm consistent with all that God's been doing, and in fact, I'm consistent because Jesus is consistent, and he's the one that Moses was pointing to and whom I'm preaching. It doesn't say that I'm preaching him here, but that's what he's pointing to. 
So I, I know that this is a little heady, but it's important for us to see that Stephen had a really clear understanding of the scriptures, and uh, the Lord was able to use that. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, but let's sing a song of preparation first. Let's stand to sing. Eat. That's a message that will get you smiles or get you trouble. He lives. Reminds me of the song. Who knows? Um, was it Nicole Mullen? My Redeemer Lives. Who could sing that real? Like, I can't sing. Oh, my Redeemer lives. And then there's this line at the end of the song. I know he lives because I talked with him this morning. Right? I talked to him this morning. He walks. There's a hymn in our old, our gray hymnal. He leads me, he guides me along life's way. He walks with me and he talks with me. And if you start telling people that God talks to you, they'll either get interested or want to check you into a psych ward or, 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 you know, shove you away. Here's why. It's the message of a living Jesus that is intimidating to the, to the kingdom of darkness. A historical Jesus doesn't bother anybody. If you've got a historical Jesus way back there who's a great man and a good teacher, and you know what, I don't even mind if you place a little faith in him as long as you don't talk about him or you don't bring him out of the church and into the world and you don't bring him into your relationship with me and you don't start telling me that he's active and he's alive and he changes hearts and he transforms people and that he's Lord who needs to be responded to. If you don't do any of that, there's no problem. No resistance. But if you've got a Jesus who's risen from the dead, Paul says, if there ain't no resurrection, we got no hope. It all hangs here. But we got a resurrected Jesus who's ascended and who is Lord and who's still at work through his church, saving people, touching people, healing people. And that is what Satan resists. That's why Stephen is getting pushed back against in this text this morning because it's a living Jesus who's alive and active and at work. I, I just finished reading a biography of uh, Reverend Bob Whitaker, who was a Presbyterian pastor in Arizona, which is where the Jaspers family, who's traveling right now, everybody remember we commissioned and sent them off there in Arizona right now. Um, so we've all been jealous for the last couple months. But... So he's in Chandler, Arizona. This young, this young Presbyterian pastor might be in his forties, uh, a number of years ago, and he's got a flourishing ministry. Congregation loves him, good relationship with him, and, uh, growing. And then he discovers, like many of us reform folks have been over the last few decades, the work in the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a new way. And he begins to discover that Jesus is healing people as he lays his hands on him. And the, some, some people in the church, begin to become real curious. And so they start to grow together and they, they grow in an understanding of the gifts and the power of God's spirit in a way that they hadn't before. And it's beautiful. And then all of a sudden, three people from his council call him up and say, you need to stop this. Stop what? You need to stop laying hands on people and talking about those gifts and what's prophecy. 
Well, you know, this, he teaches them and he shows them from Scripture. This is really consistent with how God's worked. And this is necessary for advancing the kingdom of God. We don't do it in our own strength. And you need to stop it. And again, he takes them through and they say, no, you need to stop it. And they take it to the council and the council says, you need to stop it. And the council says, actually, we want you to sign a vow that you will not speak about the gifts and the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, I can't do that. The only vow I'm allowed to take is my ordination vow. And this is consistent with scripture. And so they send it to the presbytery and the presbytery. That's like our, the regional group of churches. Okay. They say, you need to sign this vow. He says, I can't do that. And so they kick him out of ministry. And he, so he's beaten up and he's out of ministry going, God, what do I do? And, a, and another pastor who's also was a lawyer in a previous life says, you need to take this to the denomination at the highest level. They've got a judicial community and you got to take it to them. I don't want to do that. I don't want to create a mess. He says, he, they say, no, take it. And so he goes and he takes it and they entirely vindicate him. And they say, there is no way that you can be asked to sign a vow like this. It's completely unbiblical. And um, they reinstate him in ministry and bless him. And, of course, he can't go back to that church. It's just a mess and there's all kinds of hurt. But why? Why was he being resisted in the church? Why in the church? Remember, Jesus says that the wheat and the tares grow up together. Okay? So Jesus doesn't assume that everybody who's gathered together in his name or that's come together on a Sunday morning is equally welcoming him and sensitive to the work of his Holy Spirit. And so to the degree, I said to Ann uh, a couple days ago, I wish I had a picture for this, but if you could picture that we're like, um, well, there's no picture. That's why I said I wish I had a picture. <laughs> Maybe you'll get a picture while I'm talking about this, okay? So, so to the degree that we welcome truth and are sensitive to what God says and what God's doing and we agree and let God work in us and through us, to that degree we're yielded to Him and He can work through us. But to the degree that we resist Him, there's no neutrality. To the degree that we resist Him, whether out of fear or control or ignorance or pride or whatever else it is, to the degree we resist God, we actually give room not for God to work through us, but actually for Satan to develop strongholds within our minds and our hearts and then even to flow out through us. Like he can, you know, so here's a picture. Jesus, Matthew 16, Jesus says, to his disciples just after he said, who do, who do they say I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, you're right. And I'm the Christ. And now we're going toward Jerusalem because the son of man needs to suffer and be buried. And, um, he'll raise again, but he's got to suffer at the hands of the leaders. And what does Peter say? Peter takes him aside and starts rebuking him and saying, no way. There's no suffering in your, in this plan. You're the Messiah. You are not going to suffer. And Jesus turns and says, get behind me, Satan. Okay. Now this, let's remember, Peter's a follower of Jesus. Peter has give, Peter has ye, confessed him as the Messiah. 
He's a legitimate follower. There's faith in his heart. And he's got the words of Satan on his lips. Is this a helpful picture? See, why? Why are the words of Satan on his lips? Because he has not discerned his thoughts and their origin. He's not discerned that this rebuking the plan of God to suffer actually comes from the very one who said he was going to assert his own will against God, didn't want to yield to God, Satan, right? He said the kingdom of me first. And so Peter's not discerning that this actually is from the Lord. God's at work in Jesus to suffer and die for the world, but Peter's not discerning it, not testing it against Scripture or against the character and the intentions of God, discernment principles. Peter's working out of his own narrative that Messiahs don't suffer, and so he's got Satan's words on his lips. Now, Jesus knows enough to rebuke him, but the point I'm trying to make here is he's open and a vessel for words that are not true, but that actually flow from the kingdom of darkness. That's how a church like Bob Whitaker's can reject the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's how religious leaders who've got the Old Testament memorized can reject Stephen and reject the work of the Holy Spirit through Jesus. Okay. What, what are they reacting against? Well, how did the text begin? Stephen is moving in signs and wonders. The point's not the signs and wonders. I mean, everybody loves a miracle, but what's the miracle point to? Jesus is alive. Jesus heals. Jesus saves. Jesus delivers. So the moment you start, it's a witness, right? Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to tell people, I'm risen from the dead. And you're not just going to witness to that I'm risen from the dead. You're going to teach them what I commanded you to do. And You're going to do what I did. Remember that? Anybody who's got faith in me will do the things that I've been doing. You're going to go preach. Not in the church. Out on the streets. In your family. At work. In home. You're going to tell people there's a risen Lord and Savior who still saves and heals and delivers. So, small sub point. If we're not facing any pressure or accusation against the message of Jesus, it could be either that we're not bearing that message out or that we're surrounded by people who are entirely like us. That we're not engaged with an unbelieving world. Sometimes there's seasons of relief where there's not substantial pressure against us. And that's just God's good gift. But by and large, in a world that resists submission to God, and when you call them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, Luke said it would be a sword that would divide. Jesus would be a sword that would divide. Now, we don't come, we don't come with anger, we don't come with anything other than love, the love of Jesus Christ, but it's a message that calls for obedience, submission, repentance, faith, right, in Jesus. So we've got a living Lord who's living and active. And that brings res- that brings response, okay? So this morning, when we think about us facing accusation, because we are welcoming the work in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we are saying Jesus is alive and he's at work through us and we want to be work- at work through us out there, we can expect pressure. We can expect pushback or resistance against that message. So what do we see in Stephen 
in, or in God's grace to Stephen that can be an encouragement for us this morning. I see three things. Here they are. First thing I see is that uh, although we want to give credit to the Holy Spirit for empowering Stephen to bring this speech with great clarity, I don't think that he prepared the speech. Okay? So I don't think he woke up and, you know, knew that he was going to be given this speech this day. He got dragged in front of the Sanhedrin, and this is what came out. So although we want to give the Holy Spirit the credit for it, I think we also want to say that Stephen had a role. Because I think the Holy Spirit didn't impart all of that scripture to him out of nowhere. I believe he drew it up out of his heart. I believe the Bible was dwelling richly within Stephen. That the word of God was sown into him and had been for many years. Psalm 119 says, your word is a lamp unto my feet. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so this is just an opportunity for us to stop and reflect and say, what place, what value does the word of God have in our life? Because Stephen didn't get a chance to prepare in the moment. He'd been prepared for years. The Lord knows what's coming ahead of us. The Lord knows what situations you're going to be sent into to represent him. The Lord knows when you're going to need wisdom. He knows when you're going to need something from his word. He knows it all. But your role now is to prepare by being that fertile soil that takes in the word and lets it, memorizes it meditates on it, loves it, honors it, grows up in it. Okay? So the Lord's part is to bring, to empower in the moment. I think Pastor Jalisa meditated on that last week in terms of how is it like that when we get rejected or we get accused, uh, sometimes it's not even our enemies, it's just people that we love. If we just even feel a little bit of an insinuation, we get our ire up. We get, you know, like we get... How is it that in this moment Stephen is is um, empowered to shine with the Lord's presence and to speak so clearly this truth? Well, there's a foundation that's been laid. So I believe the Lord's inviting us to lay that same foundation just as we look at Stephen. Okay, second thing. The reason I read through Pastor Gina's text for next week, which was where he actually gets killed, is because it just wanted us to look ahead and hear the words, Father, forgive them. Because it would be easy for us to end on the words that ended my text, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, and this, this rebuke or this critique, and to think that he's angry, and that he's coming with judgment and anger alone. But when you hear him praying, God, forgive them. God, have mercy. God, then you can see he's got no bitterness in his heart. So he does have, he has godly anger against resistance of God in his ways, but he has no bitterness. He's not taking this personally. And I think where a lot of us get stuck or can get stuck is bitterness. Because we don't recognize that when people accuse us or they critique us or they come against us or they come against our message or they resist the ways that we're trying to represent the Lord, that it's actually not about us. It's about the Lord. 
Now, the same principle applies even when it's when we're not talking about the Lord. We get stuck in bitterness a lot. We, it's really easy. That's why the author of Hebrews says, see to it that nobody misses the grace of God. Let no bitter root grow up within you that causes trouble and defiles many. Because if something happens to you or comes against you that's hurtful and you don't intentionally forgive, that anger takes root in your heart. And then it grows up and it defiles. And instead of a pure speech coming out of Stephen or someone else, us, anger comes out. Judgment comes out. Okay, this is a really, really human issue. So I don't think there's one of us in here that doesn't doesn't have to really deal with this ongoingly. Okay, we get hurt all the time. Stephen's in this moment, he's pure. He's able to deliver God's word purely to represent God and God's character all the way through to his own death because he's ongoingly full of the Holy Spirit, God's character. Okay, so I see that he's allowed the word to take deep root within him, that he's allowed God's character to be formed in him. That's both made him ready for this. And then um, the third thing I see is he's yielded to bring glory to God in whatever way God would choose or allow. So this is what I think is so amazing. One day he's moving. He's a charismatic church leader moving with signs and wonders One day, he's laying his hands on people, and they're getting healed. And the next day, he's laying his life down and bringing glory to God through his death. This is incredible. Like, he knew where this speech would take him. He knew when he stood up and he spoke these words. Jesus prophesied it ahead. He's got discernment and wisdom. He can recognize the crowd he's speaking to. He knew that in bringing this speech, he was on his way likely to death. But there's a yieldedness to God. You see, God had a purpose in this moment. God had a purpose to speak to all who were present, to witness. When we think of witness, we think of just sharing the gospel, right? But here is a witness to a living Lord that empowers someone to stand up and say, this is who God is and how God has always been working. And it's important to say that publicly. There's a lot of people that need to hear it. And this is who God is that he would even empower me to die. This is how good and loving God is. Lindsay opened the service by saying, how great the love of... the." the Say it again. John 15. No greater love has any man than this, that he lays down his life for another. Right? So Jesus did it. And Stephen's been filled with that love. And now Stephen's ready to lay down his life. I just want to say again, we don't know. You do not know when God is going to call you to represent his love or his character. But will you be ready for that moment? And I believe the way that Stephen was ready was because of his engagement with Jesus Christ and his knowing, his deep, deep knowing of the love that had purchased him. And so he's saying, Lord, I will yield my life. We just sang that earlier, right? I'll yield my life 
for you as you yielded your life for me. So three ways that when the ketchup bottle gets of our life gets squeezed, pressure, accusation, or other ways, that we can be prepared so that what comes out is Jesus Christ and his love. And those three ways are being filled with the word of God, filled with the love, the character of God, and then yielded to bring God glory. And that's just an ongoing prayer. It doesn't happen except if you keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. When you keep your eyes on him, then and you see him for who he is, then you want to bring him glory. And so then you're able to pray, Lord, glorify every day. Lord, glorify yourself through my life. Use me today. Squeeze out. Glorify yourself through me. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this group of brothers and sisters, followers of you that do want to glorify you.